As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to another week of Paranormal Mysteries. I'm your host, Nick Ryan. I hope everyone had a great weekend, and before we start today's episode, I'd like to thank all of you for your support and generosity. And if you enjoy the show, please consider following, sharing, and reviewing the podcast. This supports us by helping new listeners to discover the show. You can also support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash paranormalmysteries or by donating at buymeacoffee.com slash paranormal. And if you'd like to share your paranormal encounter on the podcast, you can write to me at paranormalmysteriespodcast at gmail.com, or by visiting our website at paranormalmysteriespodcast.com. Or if you'd prefer to record your experience and send it to me, you can now do this on our website as well. You can also visit speakpipe.com slash paranormalmysteries and record your story there. And remember, all these links can be found in the show notes. And with that being said, let's begin today's show. On Wednesday, May 9th, 2001, something extraordinary took place at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Dr. Stephen Greer, a retired physician and ufologist, brought together over 20 military, intelligence, government, corporate, and scientific witnesses to establish the reality of UFOs, extraterrestrial life forms, and resulting advanced energy and propulsion technologies. These high-ranking men and women stood in a crowded conference hall before hundreds of their peers and approximately 20 news cameras and admitted that they have proof of UFOs and, in some cases, extraterrestrials. The topics and sheer number of reliable witnesses at the conference was undeniable, although the mainstream media never brought it to the forefront. And over the last 20 years, this groundbreaking event has been somewhat relegated to a dark corner of the internet, only to be remembered by its attendees, and perhaps those of us who are looking for answers. In my mind, this conference played a major role in reminding our government that people deserve answers and that there are others willing to risk everything to allow the truth to be heard. This conference may even be part of the reason that now 20 years later, the U.S. government has slowly begun to declassify some of its reports, and I believe that anyone who is interested in UFOs or extraterrestrials absolutely needs to hear what these witnesses have to say. So without further delay... I'd like to bring you the first unedited half of the 2001 Disclosure Project Conference at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. 
Years ago, the great screen actor Jimmy Cagney was working with a young actress that was about to be fired. Uh, he went to the director and said, let me talk to her. And he walked over to the actress and he said, look, it's simple. You walk in the room, you plant your feet, look me in the eye, and tell the truth. The logo of the X-Files is the truth is out there. The truth is out there. I'm going to paraphrase. The truth is in here. You're about to hear the truth. I'm an actor. My name is John Seifer. I'm here to introduce your host this morning, Dr. Stephen Greer. He's a man who is running pell-mell where the brave dare not go. He was an emergency room physician. In fact, the director of emergency medicine at a major hospital in North Carolina. Three years ago, he sat his wife and his four daughters down and said, I've been doing this part-time, running after the truth, for seven years now. Now I'm going to do it full-time. He walked away from all that money to pursue the truth. I always think of Hamlet's great line to Horatio, there are more things between heaven and hell than are dreamed of in your philosophy, Horatio. I'm going to introduce a man who says, there are more things between heaven and hell than any of us have accepted. And I have the witnesses and the documents to prove it. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Stephen Gould. Thank you very much, John. Uh, members of the press, the American public, and people of the world. We are here today to disclose the truth about a subject that has been ridiculed and questioned, denied for at least 50 years. The men and women who are on this stage and the some 350 additional military intelligence witnesses to the so-called UFO matter and extraterrestrial intelligence can prove and will prove that we are not alone. I would like to thank Sarah McClendon, who is with us today, the famed White House correspondent, for her sponsorship of this meeting. Thank you very much, Sarah. In 1993, a group of uh, military advisors to this project and I met out in the countryside in Virginia. And we decided that it was time for civilians, military, intelligence, and other people to come together to disclose the truth about the subject which is called UFOs. Since that time, I have personally briefed a sitting director of Central Intelligence, James Woolsey, President Clinton's first CIA director. I have personally briefed the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, the head of Intelligence Joint Staff, members of the Senate Intelligence Committee, many members of Congress, members of the European leadership, the Japanese cabinet, and others. 
And what I have found is that none of them are surprised that this is true, but they are uniformly horrified that they have not had access to these projects. We can establish through these witnesses whom we have identified, which now number over 400, and these are people who have been inside the CIA, NSA, NRO, Air Force, Navy, Marines, Army, all divisions of the intelligence and military community, as well as corporate witnesses, contractors to the government. And these are folks who have been involved in so-called black budget or covert unacknowledged projects. These unacknowledged special access projects are taking in at least 40 to 80 billion dollars per year. And they are sitting on technologies that can change the world forever. The reason we are coming forward now is that we are asking for the U.S. Congress and for President Bush to move towards an official inquiry and disclosure on this subject. It has the most profound implications for the human future, for the U.S. national security, and for world peace. Specifically, technologies connected to UFO and extraterrestrial vehicles, if declassified and used for peaceful energy generation and propulsion, would solve the looming energy crisis definitively, would end global warming, would correct the environmental challenges that the Earth is facing. It is also critical that we begin to debate as a society the propriety of placing weapons in space. If indeed, as we can prove, it is true that we are not alone and that space is territory which we are sharing with other civilizations, it could be a very imprudent, destabilizing thing to place weapons in space. This is not being debated because it is off the national and international radar screens. It needs to be placed on it, and we are here today to do it. We can establish through this testimony that these objects of extraterrestrial origin have been tracked on radar going thousands of miles per hour, stopping and making right-hand turns, that they use anti-gravity propulsion systems, which we have already figured out how they work in classified projects in the United States, Great Britain, and elsewhere that these objects have landed on terra firma, at times have been disabled and have been retrieved specifically by teams within the United States, that extraterrestrial life forms have been retrieved and their vehicles have been taken and studied thoroughly for at least 50 years. We can prove through the testimony and documents that we will be presenting that this subject has been hidden from members of Congress and at least two administrations that we are aware of, presidential administrations, and that the Constitution of the United States has been subverted by the growing power of these classified projects and that this is a danger to the national security. There is no evidence, I wish to emphasize, that these life forms from elsewhere are hostile towards us but there is a great deal of evidence that they are concerned with our hostility. There are times when they have neutralized or rendered inert the launch capabilities of intercontinental ballistic missiles. Witnesses here today will describe those events to you. They have shown clearly that they do not want us to weaponize space. 
and yet we are proceeding down that dangerous path. And it will be established that these projects, because they have not been supervised properly by the Congress, by the U.S. President, by the international community, have become a threat to the national security. And for this reason, we feel we must disclose the facts. This is the beginning of the campaign for disclosure. And in a memo that I wrote to President Bush last week, I've stated that this campaign will persist until our goals are met, and they are as follows. That we have open, honest hearings on the subject in the U.S. Congress. That there be a permanent ban on the weaponization of space or the targeting of any objects of extraterrestrial origin that there be a full and complete study of classified technologies connected to this subject to see how they could be properly declassified and applied for peaceful energy generation so that the world may get off of fossil fuels in enough time to prevent greater ecosystem damage or war over the looming energy crisis, which is sure to sweep the earth in the coming decade. This is a matter of the most pressing import. It has been ridiculed, yes. I know many in the media would like to talk about little green men. But in reality, the subject is laughed at because it is so serious. I have had grown man, men weep who are in the Pentagon, who are members of Congress, and who have said to me, what are we going to do? Here's what we will do. We will see that this matter is properly disclosed. And these courageous witnesses, the first 21 of over 100 that we have already interviewed on videotape, have stepped forward to speak the truth. Now, I expect people to be skeptical, but not irrationally so, because these men and women have come forward and they have their credentials, they can establish who they are, and they have been first-hand witnesses to some of the most important events in the history of the human race. As was pointed out to me by some of the men here, they were charged with handling the nuclear weapons of the United States. Their word was trusted on everything of great importance for the national security. We must trust their word now. As Monsignor Balducci said at the Vatican, in an interview I had with him recently, it is irrational not to accept the testimony of these witnesses. So please be skeptical, but that is not the same as prejudiced and closed-minded. This is a matter of great importance, and I ask the media, the scientific community, and the political community to look seriously at this matter and to do the right thing for humanity and for our children. We have available for the media and for members of Congress a nearly 500-page briefing document with transcripts from dozens of these top-secret witnesses. We have a four-hour videotape summary, it's not a commercial product, I'll warn you, from this project of the 120 hours that we have in interviews so far. They've been boiled down to four hours and it's available for the Congress to review and for the major media to review. We can establish that this subject is real.
and has tremendous significance for the human future. I ask on all of you who are listening to contact the members of Congress that represent you and the leaders around the world and other countries and ask them to hold an honest inquiry into this subject to support a ban on weaponizing space since we are sharing space with other life forms and that we move quickly as a people to understanding that this is the end of the childhood of the human race. It is time for us to become mature adults in the cosmic civilizations out there. To do this, <clears throat> we must become a peaceful civilization and we must look as we go into space with an intent of cooperating with other civilizations, not weaponizing that high frontier. The men and women who will speak next will do so in order, beginning on your left. They will introduce themselves. I ask for the media to refrain from questions until each witness has spoken briefly about who they are and what they have personally been involved with or witnessed in their government, military, or government-connected careers. At the end, we will have questions. All of you may ask questions for as long as we can stay here, and we will provide you with all the information that you need. So we will begin now with the first of our witnesses, Mr. John Callahan. President Carter asked to be briefed on specifically the UFO matter and the <laughs> My name is John Callahan. I'm a retired FAA employee. I was the division manager for the Accidents Evaluation and Investigation Division in DC. About two years before I retired, I received a call from Alaska region where the uh, region wanted to know what to tell the media. When I questioned, tell the media what, he says about the UFO, and it went downhill from there. What UFO? It turned out I told him what any government employee would do at that time was to tell him it's under investigation. And then I had him send all that data to the FAA's tech center in Atlantic City. The next day, my uh, immediate boss, service director, Harvey Safir, and I went to Atlantic City. I had just purchased a, uh, a new video camera, and I videoed the, uh, the event. In Atlantic City, we had them play back on a, uh, on a scope, you would call it a scope, a plan view display, PVD, exactly what the pilot uh, uh, seen or what the controller seen, and we uh, tied that in with the voice uh, tape so we could hear exactly what the controller said and what he heard, and we taped it. We came back the next day, uh, briefed the administrator, Admiral Ingen, on what happened. He wanted a five-minute briefing. After we started the brief and he wanted to know if he could see the video, we put the video on, he watched the video, the whole video. The next day uh, he set up a, uh, a meeting for me to give a dog and pony show to President Reagan's scientific staff and whoever they brought over and to hand off all that data to them. That uh, morning in the FAA round room, it was either 9 or 10 o'clock, uh, three men from uh, Reagan's scientific staff three CIA people, three FBI people, and I don't remember who the other guys were, 
along with all the FAA experts that I brought with me that could decide or talk about the hardware and the software, how it worked, we put on a dog and pony show. We let them watch the video. We had all the data there. We had all the printouts that the computer uh, put out. They got all excited over it. When it was all done, the uh, CIA, uh, one of the CIA men told the people they were now sworn to secrecy that this meeting never happened and this event never happened. When I asked them why, uh, uh, I, mean, I thought it was probably just a stealth bomber at the time, he says, well, this is the first time that we have uh, recorded radar data on a UFO, and these guys are going to get all excited uh, drooling over all this data. I said, well, you're going to tell the public about it. And he says, no, we don't tell the public about this. It would uh, panic the public. He says, we're going to go back and study this. I said, okay. That uh, was what he was going to do. Now, I've told this story many times, and I get sometimes funny looks from people. I have with me the uh, voice tapes of the uh, controllers that were involved, the FAA original tapes. See, after we handed this stuff off to the president's staff, the FAA didn't know what to do with it. We don't separate UFOs from real traffic, so it's not our problem. Okay? <laughs> I have a copy of the original of the uh, video that we took which is rather interesting. And once, once the thing was all over, the reports started coming into my office, but because it wasn't an FAA air traffic problem, the FAA's report ended up on a table in my office. And it stayed there until I retired when one of the staffers packed up all my gear and helped it move to my house. Also, in a box I found just a few good days ago, in my 1992 tax return, I have the target printouts from the uh, computer data, which so if you wanted to or, or, or look at every target that was up there at the time, you can now reproduce this from this piece of paper here. And it's called the UFO Incident, uh, Japan 1648, I believe the number was, that happened on November the 18th, 1986. Uh, I'm prepared to go to Congress, to swear before Congress that everything I've told you people and everything that is here is the truth. Thank you. Good morning. I hope you'll pardon me. I'm a little bit nervous. My name is Charles L. Brown. I'm a Lieutenant Colonel U.S. Air Force, retired, subsequently seven years with the Foreign Service. I like the name Charlie Brown, a gentleman by the name of Charles Schultz of great talent, sort of uh, elevated the name, if you will. Uh, during World War II, I was a young farm boy from West Virginia. I got the patriotic bug, joined the United States Army, ended up flying bombers in Europe and ended the war transport in the Pacific. Finished college in the summer, late summer of 49, recalled to active duty in the newly formed United States Air Force. I was assigned to an organization called Office of Special Investigations. The Air Force, as most of you know, was formed in 1947. OSI as a central investigative agency for the Air Force was formed, I think, in 1948. So everything was relatively new. Needless to say, starting in 47, UFOs were rather new. The Air Force Intelligence, or Air Technical Intelligence Center was at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and 
I had my office in a building adjacent to it. And our organization was the worldwide investigative agency for the Air Force for any unidentified flying objects. This lasted for about two years. The project name was known as Project Grudge. It was a predecessor to a project known as Blue Book, which Ed Rupelt headed. During my experience with it, I would collect the data from around. I didn't collect it. It was sent into my office. I analyzed it. As a pilot investigator, I was able to offer some bits of advice to the air technical intelligence people. Now, you might visualize a massive office, but as I recall, we had a first lieutenant, uh, a secretary, and a technical sergeant. That was the essence of Project Blue Book when it started, or Project Grudge Blue Book, and expanded somewhat. During the review as an analyst of these various documentary reports, if you will, or documents, I became clearly convinced that there was substance to what was being reported in that we had ground visual, ground radar, airborne visual, and airborne radar confirmation of some of these sightings. The individuals who made the sightings were everything from airline pilots, military pilots, police officers, some of the people that your lives depend upon on a daily basis. These are very reputable and credible people. I hope that the testimony here from very credible people will convince you of that and will further Steve Greer's disclosure project in that pressure needs to be brought to bring this to the attention, not only of the Americans, but of people all over the planet. These vehicles have been seen and confirmed all over the planet. I am willing to sign a sworn statement or testify to my judgment and to what I have observed. Such things do exist. Please believe me. Please believe the, those to follow me. Thank you. My name is Michael Smith. I was in the Air Force Sergeant from 1967 to 1973. I was aircraft control and warning operator. While I was assigned to Klamath Falls, Oregon in early 1970, I arrived at the radar site and they were watching a UFO on a radar that was hovering at about 80,000 feet. It sat there for about 10 minutes and then slowly descended uh, until it dropped off the radar. It was gone for about 5-10 minutes and then instantly reappeared at 80,000 feet, stationary. The next sweep of the radar, it was 200 miles away, stationary. And it hovered there for about 10 minutes and redid the whole cycle twice more. When I found out what the normal what you normally do when you see a UFO. I was told that you notify NORAD, you don't necessarily write anything down, you don't write anything down, and you keep it to yourself. It's a need-to-know basis only. And NORAD one night called me about later in the year to let me know as a heads up that there was a UFO coming up the California coastline. I asked them what I should do about this. They said, nothing, don't write it down, just, it's just a heads up. And then, late 1972, while stationed at 
Radar Squadron in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. I received uh, a couple panicky calls from police officers who were chasing three UFOs from Mackinac Ridge up I-75. So I immediately checked the radar, confirmed that they were there, called NORAD, and they were concerned because they had two inbound V-52s going to Kinslow Air Force Base. So they diverted them because they didn't want any proximity of the two. And that night I answered many calls from uh, the police department, sheriff's department and stuff. And my standard response was that there was nothing on radar. And I will testify to this under oath to a congressional hearing. Good morning. My name is Enrique Kolbeck. I am a traffic controller. I'm sorry uh, for my English. I'm so scared. I'm not accustomed to talk in front of a lot of people. Um, I'm here because I'm uh, being a witness in a voluntary way uh, on my work. Uh, I work in Mexico City as radar controller and the International Airport of Mexico. And uh, I'm going to give an example about this uh, science that we have in Mexico for several uh, years, and uh, this uh, issue happens a lot of times in my country, unfortunately. Uh, for example, in March 4, 1992, we detected 15 objects uh, west side of the Toluca Airport, that is very close of our international airport, at uh, 50 miles more or less. Then uh, uh, July 28, 1994, we have an, uh, um, almost a collision or something that we can name in that way uh, with an international flight, I mean uh, domestic flight of Iron Mexico 129, commands by the uh, pilot Raimundo Cervantes Ruano that has a trash or something about in his main uh, landing year in the right leg. Uh, that's occurred night at uh, 10.30, more or less. Then, in the next week, uh, the same year, in the same uh, moment, uh, the Aeromexico Fly 904 has another almost collision that was reported for the pilot Corso, the Capitan Corso, at 11.30 in the morning, and we detect that uh, object on a radar. Uh, um, suddenly, uh, just for a moment. Then, uh, in the next week, we have a lot of sightings reported by the pilots that give us information about the uh, weird uh, traffic or something, uh, bright lights, and uh, different times. And we detect some of them. Uh, in, in, in that uh, week. But in uh, September 15 of 1994, we have an, uh, a detection about uh, five hours, more or less, on a radar and a new equipment that we believe that uh, that equipment was uh, working in, in not a good way because uh, uh, it's not uh, human that you have uh, detection by five hours of the same object and apparently without movement. 
Well, we concur with the technical uh, persons of radar in our country that the radar system was working well and, uh, and, and was very exciting and we surprised when uh, at the next day we received information about uh, a periodist named Jaime Maussan that is uh, studied these cases in Mexico about that uh, a sighting a lot from a lot of people in the Metepec city uh, is in another point located southeast of the Toluca airport about an, uh, uh, sighting of the big um, flying saucer apparently uh, 15 meters of diameter than uh, for a lot of people and uh, that uh, let the trash is something in, 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 the, in, in the ground. Well, next in uh, November 90, 24, 1994, uh, we have on service officially our new radar system. And after that moment, we have uh, information very uh, exactly about of these sightings at the same time with the pilots and detections. Uh, that's why I'm here, because we consider in my country that this is very dangerous. We have a lot of more cases, but I don't want to use more time in this. But uh, uh, it's very important that the people uh, on the world knows these events and uh, consider that could be very dangerous for aeronautical situation, especially in my country. I don't know why in my country that's occurred frequently. But the, the point is that happens, and, uh, and we consider dangers. And we had only, uh, unfortunately, one trash, but we don't want to have an, another more. Thank you very much, and I'm sorry for my English. Before we continue, we're going to take a quick break, so please don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. My name is Graham Bethune. I'm a retired Navy commander, pilot, had a top secret clearance. Fifty years ago, February the 10th, 1951, I was flying from Keflavik, Iceland to Argentia, Newfoundland. It was at night. It was dark. About 300 miles outside of Argentia, I saw a glow on the water, like approaching a city at night. As we approached this glow, it turned to a monstrous circle of white lights on the water. We watched this for a while, the lights went out, there was nothing on the water, 
Next thing we saw was a yellow halo, small, much smaller than whatever it was launched from, and that was 15 miles away, up to our altitude. Because of the trajectory, I disengaged the autopod, shoved the nose over to try to go under this thing. And at that time, I heard a noise underneath. I thought maybe it hit us. It was actually some of the crew members ducking, and they collided, and a couple of them were injured. Then it appeared over to the right and moved out slowly and flew with us. It was still not at our altitude, but we could see the shape of it. It had a dome. We could see the, we could see the coronal discharge. I went back aft, let the other pilot, Al Jones, take my seat to see what the passenger's reaction was. Came back to the cockpit, told him not to report anything, simply because what that the psychiatrist had said to me, maybe they would lock us up. So basically, the instruments in the cockpit, we had four or five failures in the area of magnetic compass, you know, the electromagnetic effect, in area of directional finders, and this type of thing. The craft was tracked by radar in excess of 1,800 miles an hour. It never did get to our altitude. We had 31 passengers, plus the psychiatrist and the crew members, that all sighted this at different areas. When we landed at Argentia, Newfoundland, we were interrogated by the Air Force, an excellent interrogation, Captain Paulson. When we landed at the Naval Air Test Center here at Patuxent River, we were required by Navy intelligence to make out individual reports. Out of the National Archives, I have the 18-page official Navy and Air Force report. I've made up a a report to straighten out all the truth. There's a stack of books out there this high that have written all of this up. So the truth is here. I will testify under oath before Congress that everything that I have said is true. My name is Dan Willis. I was in the United States Navy. I held a top secret crypto level 14 extra sensitive material handling security clearance. I worked in the code room at the Naval Communications Station in San Francisco. In 1969, I received a priority message from a ship near Alaska that uh, was classified as secret. The ship reported uh, merging out of the ocean uh, near port bow, a brightly glowing uh, reddish-orange elliptical object, approximately 70 feet in diameter, emerged out of the water, <coughs> shot into space, uh, traveling at about 7,000 miles per hour. This was uh, tracked on ship's radar and substantiated. Uh, years later, I worked at the um, Naval Electronic Engineering Center in San Diego for 13 years. The um, co-worker who I worked with worked at the NORAD facility. When he first started working at the facility, he noticed objects going on the screens that track everything out in space and in the air. Objects going off the scale, doing right angle turns. When he inquired, um, his older supervisor advised him that, uh, quote, it was just a visit from one of our little friends. I thought this was a little unusual. Uh, these statements are true. I'm willing to testify under oath before Congress. Thank you.
My name is Don Phillips. I was in the United States Air Force and uh, had worked with certain intelligence agencies of the United States government. Prior to my Air Force, uh, prior to joining the Air Force, I worked for the famous Lockheed Skunk Works. And I was working for them when I was attending college and I worked, them, I worked for them in the capacity as a design engineer. It was one of my proudest moments of my life to work with a man by the name of Kelly Johnson. A lot of you might be familiar with that. Uh, it turns out that the models of aircraft that we were building, as you know, uh, were all classified, were in the deep black, and that I came in on, on the end of the U-2 project. My main project was known later as the SR-71. The SR-71 had a predecessor. It had a special model built for the CIA. And that those models were one, one passenger, one pilot, special aircraft in order to get from one place to another very, very quickly. Now these SR-71s as we know them, the Blackbird, are the type of aircraft that are still classified in a sense as far as the altitude that it flies at and also the speed records that it holds. I'm very proud to say that this aircraft played a big part in helping to end the Cold War. The aircraft, the predecessor aircraft, there's strong evidence to suggest that perhaps these aircraft had a different role once in the air. Each pilot and I knew a few of them. Each pilot had an assignment before they took off. Okay? They learned about the assignment immediately prior to takeoff, and there's strong evidence to suggest that there was a dual role in that they were monitoring some type of traffic to and from planet Earth. This can be verified at a later point. This was, I'll jump into my military experience. My first field assignment for the United States Air Force was at Las Vegas Air Force Station. And that was my first experience with Las Vegas and I couldn't understand why people were being so uh, excited about going to a place such as this, but I soon found out about a year later. Uh, Nellis Air Force Base is located there. Nellis is a major training center for different types of special aircraft and fighter aircraft one of the premier training sites for pilots all around the world. However, when I learned that my assignment was at a radar site 50 miles out of town up near Mount Charleston, uh, I had no idea where, we, where I'd be, so finally in the daylight I was able to find the location and report it in, uh, in 1965 for duty. In 1966, Early in the morning, about 1 to 2 a.m., I was sleeping, I was staying there on base, and our barracks were at about mm, 8,000 feet. I heard a lot of commotion, you know, at that altitude, sound carries. Sound carries tremendously. And I thought, well, it's early in the morning, it's summertime, and there is a lot, it's very warm and maybe I should get up and take a look. I didn't really want to, but I got up and took a look, walked up to the main road up near my office, which was the commander's office. I was on the commander's staff, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Evans. 
And I couldn't, I, I was saying, who's making all this noise? Who's making all this noise at this time of the morning? So when I got within about 50 yards of the five, four or five people that were standing there, one being the chief of security, they were looking up in the air, and I said, gee, they all, their heads are all head, uh, looking at the same direction. Well, I looked up to the west, northwest, and to my amazement, there were lights flashing around the sky, moving at anywhere from what seemed like 2,400 uh, 2, to about 3,800 miles per hour. Now, the fact that we're taking an estimate from a distance uh, you know, we figured, well, this is, this is quite something. However, we continued to watch these, these darting lights go across the sky and stop, absolutely stop, come to a dead stop and reverse in an acute angle their direction and then proceed on in sort of, they were traveling so fast that you could almost see a pattern left by, if you are computer people, when you move a mouse real quick across the screen, you see a little bit of a tail. Well, that's exactly the way these six or seven craft worked. After five minutes of watching these things, they all seemed to group up to the west-northwest. Okay? They started to come in on a circle. But what I would like to point out is that where they were putting on their display in the north-northwest sky, just directly east of that is what is known as Area 51. Area 51 is a AEC name, okay? Atomic Energy Commission. That was the old name for Atomic Energy Commission. We knew it as the Groom Lake Flight Test Facility in the Air Force. And it was where we tested our aircraft at this, after we got the prototype made from the Skunk Works. So here are these, let's get back to the circle in the sky. What they did was coalesce and, and started rotating in a circle and then they disappeared. Well, I thought, gee, this is something that we have to keep quiet and that was verified by the chief of security. But we waited there and talked it over for a little bit and it seemed like, I think it was an hour. Then came the radar people from the scopes, which were at 10,000 plus feet, came down for their dinner at two o'clock in the morning. And the first person off the bus was a good friend of mine, Anthony Kesar. He said, he was white as a sheet, and he says, did you see that? Yeah, we all said, yeah, yeah, it was a nice display, what a show. He says, we documented them on radar. And he says, we didn't give them clearance, we just, the standing order was let them fly through the radar beam. He says, we documented six to seven UFOs. Now, we don't know who was guiding those, but they were certainly intelligent, and uh, we don't know where they landed because they coalesced and disappeared. So. I will say at this point, to keep it short, that I will testify under oath as to what I say is true, and I will do so before Congress. Thank you. My name is Robert Solis. Uh, contrary to what it says on the card, I was not a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. I was in the Air Force uh, active duty after I graduated from the Air Force Academy in 1964 until 1971 and separated as a captain. In uh, uh, March of 1967, I was stationed at Malmstrom Air Force Base, Montana uh, as a missile launch officer, Minuteman missiles. Uh, 
on an on a early morning of uh, March 16th, 1967, I got a call from my security guard, primary security guard upstairs. Uh, we had about uh, six, as I recall, uh, flight security uh, airmen upstairs. I was downstairs 60 feet underground in a capsule uh, monitoring and uh, controlling 10 uh, nuclear-tipped Minuteman missiles. Uh, I got a call that morning uh, that they were seeing strange lights flying in the sky. Uh, I, I disregarded that call. I uh, told them to uh, call me when something more significant happened. Um, I got another call uh, subsequent to that call, and this time it was a more uh, intense tone, and the, and the guard's uh, voice is very clearly very frightened. Um, he said there was a... Uh, a bright, glowing red object hovering outside the front gate. It was oval-shaped. Uh, he had all the other guards out there with their weapons drawn. Right after that call, I woke up my commander who was on a rest period, uh, uh, Fred Mywald, a retired colonel now, uh, and uh, told him about the phone calls. As I was telling him about the phone calls, my weapons started going down uh, one after the other. They went into a no-go condition, what we call no-go condition. They were unlaunchable. Um, <clears throat> we lost uh, somewhere between uh, six and eight weapons that morning. Uh, within minutes of having received that second phone call of uh, a UFO hovering outside the front gate. Um, uh, again that morning, we were, after reporting it to the uh, command post, uh, we. Were, we were informed that a similar, very similar incident happened at Echo Flight. Uh, I was at Oscar Flight. Uh, they lost all 10 of their weapons in, under similar circumstances, very similar circumstances, where UFOs were sighted over the launch facilities. Uh, they, had, they had maintenance crews and security crews out there that had spent the night, and they were reporting UFOs over those sites. Uh, <clears throat> And the commander of, of that flight was uh, Eric Carlson. Uh, he's, he uh, also separated as a captain, and the deputy commander was uh, Walt uh, Fiegel, uh, retired as a lieutenant colonel. Um, we have those witnesses uh, that I just mentioned, the, the names I just mentioned are, uh, have, have spoken of this event before, and they will back up this story. Uh, we also have documentation uh, that I received uh, through FOA requests from the Air Force uh, outlining the, the Echo flight incident and including in, in that documentation a reference to UFOs. We have uh, telexes uh, covering this incident uh, and in one telex it it says uh, the fact that no apparent reason for the loss of 10 missiles can be readily identified is cause for grave concern to this headquarters. Uh, this was from SAC headquarters. <clears throat> so we've received, we've got those telexes. I've got about 12 witnesses that'll verify parts of this story, including um, uh, of a man who investigated the incident afterwards for the Air Force, and you'll hear a little bit more about that with the, from the next witness. 
uh, and also uh, another guard that uh, witnessed a UFO in that same time period and another officer who retired a full colonel who had other reports of UFOs. <clears throat> Ancillary to that, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got the complete report on a Minot, North Dakota incident. That was Minot Air Force Base, North Dakota, which happened in August of 1966. Very similar UFOs sighted over uh, uh, missile silos, and also a UFO incident that was re that was investigated by the Air Force immediately after our incident within a week. I'm willing to testify to the truth of all these matters that I've spoken about this in front of Congress under oath. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Dwayne Arneson. I served 26 years as a communication electronics officer in the U.S. Air Force uh, all over the world, including Vietnam. I uh, was lucky to be selected to be commander of three different units in the Air Force. I held a top secret SCI TK clearance, and for those who know, it is slightly above top secret. I retired in 1986 as a colonel at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. I would like to relate about three different experiences, if you will, that relate to UFOs. As a young lieutenant over in Germany, Ramstein Air Base, Germany, back in the early 60s, I was in charge of the cryptographic center. I had a top secret crypto clearance at that time, and I can clearly recall seeing a message that went through my crypto center which said that a UFO had crashed on the island of Spitsbergen, Norway, and the team of scientists were coming to investigate it. Going forward to the 1967 timeframe, I was assigned to the 28th Air Division at Great Falls, Montana, and I was the officer in charge of the communications center there. Also, I was a top secret control officer for the division. I uh, had a crypto account, I was an account custodian, and I also passed out nuclear launch authenticators. During that time, I can recall seeing a message come through that communications center which said, Basically, what Bob was just got through talking about is that a UFO was seen near the missile silos and the missiles were deactivated. Coincidentally, my first, the person that Boeing sent to investigate the particular missile conditions, if you will, what made them shut down, was my first manager at Boeing, Mr. Bob Kaminsky, who has since passed away. And I can recall him on different occasions. He lived close to me in Auburn, Washington. That's where I'm from. And he said, Arnie, he says, those missiles were perfectly clean. That was the result. So the one last incident concerned when I was in the, as a commander of the unit in uh, Great Falls, or in uh, Caswell Air Force Station, Maine, I had contacts with the security police at Loring Air Force Base. And they told about UFOs that were seen near the uh, nuclear weapon storage areas on Loring Air Force Base. And I'd be glad to testify to Congress that this is absolutely the truth. Thank you. Good morning, my name is Harlan Bentley. During 1957 and 1959, I was a PFC in the United States Army stationed north of Washington, D.C. on a Nike Ajax missile base 
close to Olney, Maryland. In May, this month in 1960 or 1958, about 6 a.m., I heard a noise outside that sounded like a pulsating transformer. I sat up in my bunk, I looked out the window, I saw a craft heading for the ground and crashed. Pieces broke off of that craft, immediately took off again. So <clears throat> there's a lot more to that story, but I've got to speed this up. Now, the next night, I was on radar duty. I get a call from the Gaithersburg missile base. He says, hey, I got 12 to 15 UFOs outside, 50 to 100 feet above me. So I asked him, I said, what does it sound like? He took his head mic off, held it out the van window, and said, here. And the sound, of, the same sound I heard the previous morning, except a lot more of them. <clears throat> so I, my radar was on standby, so I immediately turned it on and got the blip just outside of the ground clutter. I marked it on my radar screen. And then for a few minutes later, all of a sudden they took off. As they took off, the, the sweep came around, hit the blip. The second, when it came around, it hit it again. That blip was two-thirds away off my radar scope. In order to get that far at a constant velocity was 17,000 miles an hour. That was my first incident. Ten years later, by this time I received a, B, a bachelor of science degree in electrical engineering, and I was working in California. Now, I'm sorry that all I can say is I was somewhere in California working on a classified project that had nothing to do with my experience that I had there. As I was working, and it was like 2 or 3 in the morning, California time, I heard a Houston astronaut communication link, comlink. I didn't pay much attention to it until I heard the word bogey. Of course, my ears picked up immediately, an unidentified flying object of some sort, whether it's a craft, meteorite, or whatever, was on a collision course with that module going to loop around the moon. <clears throat> so basically, I listened for some time, and then I stopped and went back to work. And then I heard, there they go. In the astronaut world, some of you may, may not know this, there's a term called green turtle. And it used to be, I don't know if it is today or not, but it used to be is you're not allowed to use profanity over the net. And the first person that does that, whoever hears it first and says green turtle, that astronaut's got to buy that man and his entire family a dinner at the most expensive place at Cape Canaveral. Well, to end this real quick, one of them said, damn, they went off, the, the, the UFOs took off. He says, damn, that was fast. And somebody yelled, green turtle. And then he said another word, a synonym to crap. <laughs> and then somebody else yelled, green turtle. And you could see him, he grit his teeth, because now he had to buy two expensive meals. And my particular experience, I will testify before Congress if necessary and explain exactly what happened. Thank you. As we conclude tonight's episode, I hope you enjoyed hearing the first half of this conference. 
I realize that it may not be riveting at times, but I hope you agree that it is worth hearing, and I look forward to seeing you back here on Wednesday for part two. In the meantime, if you're interested in learning more about Dr. Stephen Greer and the strides he's making to bring new information to light, you can find links to all of his social media accounts in the show notes. If you've witnessed something paranormal, I'd like to hear your story. You can write to me at paranormalmysteriespodcast at gmail.com or by visiting our website at paranormalmysteriespodcast.com. Or if you'd prefer to record your experience and send it to me, you can of course do this on our website as well. You can also visit speakpipe.com slash paranormalmysteries and record your story there. And don't forget that all of our links are in the show notes. Until next time, I hope you all have a great beginning to your week, and I look forward to seeing you back here on Wednesday as we continue our journey into the unexplained, right here on Paranormal Mysteries. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.